From training to performing, join our Big League Conversation. Welcome to the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast with your host, Eric Cressy. Welcome back to the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast. I'm Eric Cressy, and we're excited for another episode. We've got Bob Tewksbury here today. He's going to share some insights from the world of mental skills coaching. Um, before we get to it, I want to remind you that this show is brought to you by Lumberland Company. They've hollowed out the bat barrel and created the coolest drinking mug ever. It's a fully customizable gift that's awesome for the baseball fans in your life, especially with Mother and Father's Day coming up. You can customize these bat mugs with colors, names, logos, or photographs and make them the perfect gift for the baseball fan that you know. Um, what's really cool now is that they're an officially licensed product of the Major League Baseball Players Association, and they have designs available for every team. You can even get the team signature edition, which featured the, the signatures of the entire 25-man roster. Um, with this bat mug, they're 100% handmade in the USA and designed exactly how you'd like. Uh, personally, I've used them as gifts for, for baseball folks in my life when I want to say thank you. Um, and to sweeten the deal, they're offering free shipping on two or more bat mugs with the code CSP at checkout. Again, if you enter CSP at checkout, you'll get free shipping on your purchase of two or more bat mugs. If you head to lumberlend.com, that's L-U-M-B-E-R-L-E-N-D.com and design your own bat mug today, you'll get the uh, the original bat mug and well-represented uh, you know, gift for your baseball fans in your life. Uh, moving forward, I want to introduce today's guest. It's a retired Major League Baseball pitcher um, who competed in the big leagues from 1986 through 1998 for six different teams. Uh, he's the lowest ratio of base on balls per innings pitch for any starting pitcher to pitch in the Major League since the 1920s. In 1992, he walked only 20 batters in 233 innings which was the best ratio in the major leagues in over half a century. When all was said and done, he threw over 1,800 major league baseball innings. And following the completion of his career, um, he worked as a pitching consultant for the Red Sox from 1999 to 2003, and then transitioned to a mental skills coach for 2004 to 2013. So that's you know three separate world championship teams. He then worked for the Major League Baseball Players Association in career development for a year before returning to the Red Sox for 2015 and 16, and then left to head to the Giants and is now with the Chicago Cubs. He earned his bachelor degrees of science in physical education at St. Leo University in 2000 and went on to earn his master's degree in sports psychology and counseling at Boston University in 2004. We're really excited to welcome Bob Tewksbury. Welcome to the show, Bob. Hey, thanks. Uh, it's great to be at Eric. Cressy's podcast like you're not busy enough already it's crazy you're not kidding but we're excited to, thank you for carving out some time so um so i'm gonna i'm gonna jump right into it uh i read the book last year 90 percent mental for those who who haven't been familiarized with it i read it on one very drawn out delayed uh flight to spring training in arizona uh last year and so mm. i had every opportunity to be cranky about the weather and sitting on a hot flight and being delayed and all that and instead i, I left my I don't know, seven or eight hour adventure uh, via airline. Very, very happy because I'd had a chance to go through the book, which was awesome. Um, no. and, and what I think was cool about it too, like, I mean, obviously there were, there were really actionable strategies and things like that. I, I, I appreciated kind of like your, your self-deprecating humor about your own career, you know, about you not mm. throwing hard enough and you still stuck around for a long time. So I, 
you know, the question I, I kind of want to start off with is, is what made you a big leaguer for 13 years and, and how has it led you to where you are today in the world of mental mm. skills? Mm. No, I'll, uh, yeah, thanks for reading the book and I'm glad it was helpful to, uh, to <laughs> kill some time. Um, so I, um, you know, I think the ability to do the little things consistently well, um, you know, I think I, I had to, because of, I didn't have a lot of velocity. I had to do the little things well. I had to feel my position. I love feeling my position. So I'd play pepper and always do, you know, little games of that type of activity. I had to work on my command. So I was always refining my mechanics and throwing at an object and, um, and I had to know the hitter's strengths and weaknesses. So I was doing scouting reports and, you know, it's the analytics that are there now. It's, it's, uh, it's pretty crazy. I, I was going through some, some notes or just some notebooks in my office the other day. And I found a log book that I had from like 1992 or something like that. And I was keeping track of first pitch strikes, how many times I get the leadoff hitter out. If I got the if I got a first pitch strike on a hitter, how many times that at bat resulted in an out, you know, what, what inning I gave up the most runs in and, and turned out to be the first inning. So these little things and paying attention to detail, um, I think with consistent, you know, consistently led to the, to the success, you know, the, the, as you know, the, the little things aren't so little, you mm -hmm. know, they're very important. And, um, and then, you know, I think that the other thing is just the passion and and love of the game, you know, to love of of preparation and competing um, there, the feeling of reward of, um, you know, it's, and satisfaction of having a job well done. And and but also, you know, as, as much as it stunk at the time, those games where things didn't go as well that increased motivation for the next time. Um, and it's really, that's probably the biggest reason that I retired after, you know, 13, 18 professional seasons was my motivation. You know, my desire to be home was greater than my desire to, to play. And so you have to, I think having that passion and that motivation helps make all those other things a lot easier. Absolutely. So, you know, kind of talk about the the impetus for. Obviously, you went back after your career was done, and you you finished up your your undergraduate degree at St. Leo, and then you went on to a master's degree in sports psychology and counseling at Boston University in two thousand four. What was the the impetus for for going? You know, essentially more clinical in nature. Um, what 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 drew you to the world of mental skills coaching? Yeah. Well, um, and I know that was the second part of your question. I think. Mm -hmm. Um, the, so when I was playing, you know, Norman Vincent Peale, the power of positive thinking, uh, if you can see it and believe it, you can achieve it. You know, I, I in high school, I read that and started practicing imagery. Um, you know, I, Phil Collins is, uh, in the air tonight was my, was my go-to song. And, and I would picture myself, you know, pitching and playing and succeeding and winning. And, um, so I had had that practice you know, in high school. And, um, and then, you know, I, I think that it probably waned a little bit, you know, your talent, you know, you can outplay the league for a while until you get to the big leagues. And then, then you got to find the little things to, to be uh, sustainable. And that's when, you know, I started, 
you know, Harvey Dorfman's books, Ken Revisa's books, you know, trying to apply the mental aspects of performance, which, um, which I needed to refine as well with, you know, negative self-talk and, mm-hmm. you know, and for me it was, you know, God, do I throw hard enough? Do I belong here? You know, after six demotions and two surgeries, it's like, am I really good enough to do this? Can I stay, you know, so there's a, some fear of success, there's fear of failure. And so, uh, and as you know, through the book, I, I talk about that very candidly. And, and um, so when I got done playing, I have all these experiences that I'm like, you know, I can share these with somebody. And um, so I had a conversation with Dan Duquette, who was the general manager for the Red Sox at the time. And I, I told him, I believed in the hardest part about being a major league player, not the hardest part. One of the hardest parts was the first three years of your, of a career, because you have options. They can send you down you know, you can perform really well and be out of a spot because of roster numbers or a contract or a veteran or whatever. Um, and so I just, I put up a little proposal that said, I'd like to be a mentor to some prospects and some young players in the big leagues. And so that's how I got into baseball after retirement. And, and it was good. You know, we had some young prospects and a couple guys in the big leagues that I talked to. And there was a, um, a guy that was uh, with the Red Sox is Dr. Uh, uh, Doug Gardner, um, who was working for the team and had a couple of players, but he's the one that said, you know, BU has a program in sports psych. And I'm like, wow, that'd be pretty cool if I could do that. And as a former player and, but I waited three more years and it was, uh, uh, the uh, the impetus for this was one night in Pawtucket, Rhode Island, a player uh, came up to me and confided that he had a cocaine problem and he needed help. So I was like, well, you should talk to the EAP. And he said, no, I don't want to talk to the EAP. So I called the Players Association and um dr joel solomon was the director of the medical then and um and i drove him he got an appointment the next morning he was if you can be in new york tomorrow morning at eight o'clock i can see him so we drove after a night game in pawtucket uh to new york city um got a hotel brought him to his appointment drove him back before batting practice the next day and no one ever knew about it um for a while, um, you know, he ended up having some treatment and this particular player's career kind of unraveled, unfortunately. But um, it was during that time that I thought all my playing experience in the world can't help me with this situation. So I need to understand how to handle this better. That was what catapulted me to go to BU and learn you know, more about proper referrals and how to handle these things. In addition to the app, you know, the applied science of, you know, self-talk and imagery and concentration and visualization, uh, uh, well, visualiz- visualization and imagery are often interchangeable. But um, so, and then I learned about the mechanics of all that, um, which was really great because even though I was doing it, I understood it better. Um and so, yeah, I was with the Red Sox um, in 04. They hired me. Unfortunately, they let 
Doug Gardner go. <laughs> uh, and he went on to do, I think he's done some great stuff in some NFL teams and he's had a great career as a private guy. Uh, but he, um, you know, it was, it was, it was his, uh, you know, input into the program. And also Theo Epstein's dad wrote a letter of recommendation. He was a, I think he's a professor at BU. So yeah. And that started at 15 years ago. Um, so I've been doing this almost as long as I played, which is scary. It just means I'm getting older and <laughs> wiser. <laughs> like, you're like fine wine, right? So, you know, and I think the other thing that's this, you know, there's a stigma historically around the, the concept of a mental skills coach. And I think that was one of the things I, I love, you know, as an aside to the book was that, you know, there was an underlying tone of like, hey, you know, there you talked about John Lester and Anthony Rizzo and Andrew Miller. Like, you know, these are big time guys who have been very successful, all have World Series rings. And, mm-hmm. and they use mental skills coaches all the time. I know the, the adherence and like the outreach in the Red Sox organization was phenomenal. Um, you know, even back when we talked about it in 2012, 13, you know, so, you know, you're obviously going to get some resistance to this, you know, because of the stigma of a mental skills coach. But can you give me some examples of, of what you've experienced on that front? You know, how you've overcome it and even how it's changed over the years from when you first started doing this, you know, 15 years ago. Yeah. Uh, well, to, to go back even further, you know, there was no resource for this when I was playing and I could have used it in New York. Um, so, you know, it was very much um, culturally, it wasn't something that was talked about, even not even within sport, but within society. It was like, you know, you only have to do this if something's wrong with you. And that yeah. was the, that's still the thing that happened is like there's and, and you don't have to be struggling to work on stuff and um but so the resistance was uh yeah it was definitely new and touchy-feely and like you know I don't want to tell anybody that I've had negative thoughts it's like you know uh I think I talked this story in the book about asking Paul Molitor if he ever loses his confidence and you know here's a guy that's ninth on the all-time hit list and he and this is when we were playing together in 97 or 98. And he goes, yeah, if I'm 0 for 12, he said, I feel like I'm never going to get another hit. <laughs> That's the thing so, that blows me away about big league hitters, too, is like we, we talk to guys, you know, in the offseason. And it's like, I got no shot against that guy. He's unreal. It's the best arm I've ever seen. Like, And, and these are <laughs> yeah. like, you know, you hear about it from really like big time guys. There's always like that one pitcher where they don't see him well or whatever it is. And, and they'll speak like that. No doubt about it. Yeah. And. And so, you know, and it's, it's, well, that's another whole thing with, yeah, you may not have a great chance, but you know, you do have a chance. (laughs) Um, But, you know, but Molitor just goes to the thinking, here's a great guy that thought he'd never get another hit. Um, But he had a strategy to, uh, to get out of that. He said, but, you know, I'll, if that happens, I, I hit the ball the right field. I stay inside the ball. I try to hit the ball. I simplify things or I lay down a bunt for a hit, which psychologically gave him a boost. So that's why he's a Hall of Famer. He had a plan with that, but a lot of people don't. And there's a great, uh, I love the movie. It's called The, the Peaceful Warrior. Nick Nolte's in it. And it was a book. It was kind of a movie off of Dan Millman's um, The Way of the Warrior, or maybe even The Peaceful Warrior. But there's a saying in that, you know, change happens from the inside out, but a lot of people are afraid to look on the inside because of what they may find. And that's, I think, a big part of the reluctance for the players is that they have this, um, 
whether it's ego or uh, just the self-identification that, you know, if, if people only knew how I really felt, they would not think of me the same way. And so it's hard, but it's, but it's, it's gotten better and it's gotten better because the, um, it's been more accepted amongst teams as a resource for players to perform better. Um, so it's becoming more normalized. Uh, teams or colleges are having those uh, teams at, at the lower levels have them. Players are being exposed to the, the concepts of sports psych earlier so that when they get to the big leagues, you know, they're aware of it and um, they may be more receptive to it than they were in the past. So, but, you know, it's really changed a lot. And, and I think it's going to be really exciting to see where this goes um, because of all the, you know, the, the research, the continued developments and the study of the brain and, you know, how the effects like mindfulness, you know, the studies of, of how beneficial that is. And, you know, we've kind of always known it, but now the science is illustrating it. And it's going to be really interesting to see where the science takes mental skills uh, in the next few years. Absolutely. You know, and this was the first off season where I, we had a free agent who was deciding between five or six teams and he actually reached out to me and he was like, Hey, can you do some digging? I had such a good experience with a mental skills coach in my previous organization that I want this to be a lasting part of where I wind up, where it actually dictated, you know, just as much as compensation or opportunity, you know, kind of where he wound up. So it's been, been cool oh, to see that's it great. come about. Yeah. And, and so here's a question for you. So, you know, I'm in the, I'm in the fitness industry, obviously. So, you know, we, we try to instill, you know, progressive forward thinking training principles that are, you know, based on science and, you know, and logic and individualized evaluations and things like that. And then we can go on Instagram, you know, every afternoon and we can see, you know, people who aren't qualified giving outrageously, <laughs> you know, inappropriate advice for people on exercise stuff. So there's, there's a lot of charlatans in, you know, in a industry where there's a low barrier to entry. And, you know, I'm sure you recognize that a little bit in your field too, that there are a lot of people who maybe don't have clinical qualifications or people that are just, you know, they're, they're, they don't necessarily have a leg to stand on in this concept. What are some of the things that you've seen? What are the big misconceptions about like what good mental skills coaching slash sports psychology work really is? What, what should people be on the lookout for as being really no bueno? Wow. Uh, yeah. yeah, you're right. And I, I love, you know, your posts and I love your comments with regard to some of the, some of the people that are out there that, um, and so I think, you know, the first one I think is, you know, anyone that says they can cure the yips, I think is, is, uh, I think that that's misleading. I think that's such a, uh, overwhelming, uh, un, uh, ununderstood or, is that a word? Ununderstood? Mis misunderstood. There you go. You're close. <laughs> we knew where you're going. Un un and I wrote a book, Eric. Un ununderstood. <laughs> Thank God for editors. <laughs> but, um, so, uh, I think that, um, you know, that's one thing I, I, because I think it's so complicated that I don't, no one understands it. Um, another thing is, you know, is say, well, you just got to think good thoughts, you know, well, mm -hmm. it's not that simple. You know, how do you, how do you do that? And mm -hmm. um, what's the what's the what's the uh, the application of that? Um, I think that um, you know there are no quick fixes. I think that there's a lot of uh, stuff that that people say you know do this and do that and you'll play better. And um, yeah, it can be very misleading because I think a lot of people, as you know, are so 
hung up on some results or some end game of a scholarship, a contract, uh, whatever it is, that they'll do anything if it if it makes them feel better. And but to feel better doesn't always mean it's the best thing to do because it's uh, I don't think a lot of it's not sustainable. So, um, you know, this is really a good question because. I've never been asked that before, so I'm kind of searching for an answer. But, um, you know, quick fix solutions don't work, Yeah, you know. It's like any other training principle. It's like exercise. You can't just do it for a day. You've got to do it for a lifetime. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, consistent thoughts lead to consistent routines. And, you know, I think that um, anything less than that, you know, uh, is just not valid. And how do you get to those consistent thoughts? And um, and the other thing is just really being, I think, uh, it's really being honest with the client, you know, and I think that's where some, some people working in the field that want to get professional athletes or work for a team, um, that covet that, uh, may be starstruck and not be able to be, have that honesty that really, Absolutely. really needs to have happened so that you develop that trust and build a relationship. And the other thing mm-hmm. Uh, the other thing that happens, and this is a big part in the field, is practicing within one, one's competency. And, and I think mm-hmm. that, um, you know, I have a master's degree in sports psychology. I, I can't and don't diagnose, treat, um, you know, any of that stuff. I, I refer clinical issues to the clinicians. And I work in applied sport psych. And I think that... Um, you know, and that's what I learned because of that incident with the with the player in Pawtucket. Um, you know, you may and referrals, you know, go to marriage counseling or individual counseling, anxiety, depression, uh, drug abuse, substance abuse. Um, and so I think that there are some people who maybe, can, you know, can tend to practice within the industry, may maybe practice without outside their bounds, which. Yep. Uh, happens, but I also think there are some clinicians who don't have a sports psych background that um, say that they do sports psych, mm-hmm. and you know I'm not sure that they may have their medical training, but because they played at college soccer doesn't mean that they're trained in sports psych, and I think yep. that that happens sometimes too. So it goes both ways, and I think the industry is really at a point now where we're trying to trying to govern all that, uh, you know, just like the training that you guys have had for strength and conditioning and nutrition. And, you know, there's, there's gotta be standards, right? And Absolutely. those standards have to be upheld. So, you know, and, you know, the interesting about it. So, um, you know, I, I always wonder, you know, and I keep drawing these parallels with strength and conditioning and, and what you do is that, you know, there's, there's always low hanging fruit, right? So we get someone who's completely detrained in a fitness, you know, standpoint and aerobic exercise is like the lowest hanging fruit. It's incredibly easy to do. You know, you can get amazing adaptations, weight loss, just, you know, improve cognition, all these magical things when you just get, you know, someone who's completely sedentary and you start walking. So it's, it's the lowest hanging fruit, maybe from a physiological standpoint, um, you know, and certainly strength training can make a big deal. If someone hasn't lifted weights, it can you know, have a powerful impact on body composition and functional capacity and all this stuff. There's got to be low-hanging fruits in the world of mental skills, sports psychology. So, you know, you get that, you know, 16-year-old kid or the 21-year-old college player or even the, you know, the minor leaguer. Like, when those guys have had no exposure to mental skills 
training, where, where do you start? What's the lowest hanging mm. fruit for those guys? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, being aware of their thoughts and, yeah. um, you know, and, and I think identifying that, that voice in their head is just that that's a voice in their head. You know, I, I do have some private clients. I have a, I have a college, um, uh, I have a junior in high school is a baseball player in, in West Virginia that wants to be a D one guy. Mm-hmm. Um, and for him, it's, you know, um, more effort equals should equal to more results. Perfectionist, you know, mm-hmm. I have to do this. I have to, uh, do that. So we talk about having realistic goals with him, like mm-hmm. what's, what's reasonable. And because he is a confident kid, mm-hmm. um, there's an, another, uh, client and, um, uh, a college pitcher that, you know, doesn't have conviction in his pitches. And it's because he's on the mound saying, you know, don't walk this guy. I hope I don't, the coach is going to get mad. So his is more related to, you know, controlling his thoughts and focusing on what I call anchor statements or the task at hand. So the low hanging fruit is like, what's the first, you know, what's the, you know, it could be multiple fruits, but what's the first thing that you feel like is hanging you up? Um, to identify that and then to build a system around that. Okay, Mm -hmm. look, this is, you know, we're talking about goal setting, but now let's talk about your self-talk related to the goals. And let's talk about how to implement an imagery program as part of your routine. Let's talk about keeping a journal of, you know, the things that you did well so that you realize that, you know, you're not perfect, but you've done a lot of things well. So, Mm -hmm. um, so it, it depends on the client, but it does vary, um, uh, well, actually, the, uh, I tell the, and I'm sure you do too, and, and work with the athletes, but the young clients, um, I'm like, you know, the big leaguers have the same thoughts that you do. And they're like, no way. You know, I'm like, oh, yeah. Um, so you normalize it that, you know, everyone's in this struggle. And, and um, uh, but yeah, I think that the low hanging fruit is just that, um, you know, normalizing it that, Hey, this is other people have these thoughts. And then they go, Oh, wow. I, you know, it's not only me. <laughs> yeah. And that was the powerful thing. I, you know, first and foremost about the book is that you could identify these are, these are very successful people who have, who have dealt with struggles and, you know, use this, these approaches to overcome them and, you know, and, and keep them at bay. It's not something that just goes away. You, you keep working on it like anything else. Um, mm-hmm. how does, how does the work, you know, building on that last question, how does the work with high school, college, you know, pro athletes differ? Um, you know, do you see certain tendencies in, in different populations? Um, and obviously pro players have marriages and they have contract negotiations mm-hmm. and things like that. What are, what are the big rocks in each one of those populations? Yeah. Well, the, the, the young player, the high school kids, um, you know, they, uh, I think there's a parental influence to this, um, yeah. That, that has to be navigated, you know, um, uh, and oftentimes the reality is, you know, uh, is the kid playing because he loves it or is he playing because he feels like it's going to make mom and dad happy? And so so understanding that difference um, and then from a personal perspective is understanding that, you know, there's different maturity levels that you really have to understand where this one where this kid's coming from you know um and uh what what he's ready for and what he's not ready for um the college kids are focused on you know 
getting the dealing with uh, things out of their control, you know, playing time, innings pitched, um, scouts, you know, you name it, yeah. yeah, velocity scouts, you know, they're dealing with so many external things that it's getting them to really focus on what's going on. And, um, and so there's, cause they want to be the pro and then the pros are trying to get to the big leagues, but um, you know, the minor league pros are really receptive and open to ideas and suggestions and will work on it. And they don't worry about what people think um, because they're trying to get there. The big league pros are oftentimes more guarded because of, you know, contract negotiations. You know, can they really trust you because you yeah. work for the team? You know, uh, and you and I have had that conversation yeah. multiple times. Yeah. Um the trust factor of, of being a team employee. So, so it changes. There's always a bump along the way. And, um, you know, I'm still learning how to navigate them. Um, but you know, the more people that you see and talk to the, the better that that becomes. So that's, what's exciting about this is every client is a new opportunity to learn something. Absolutely. So let's, you know, and let's talk about too, you know, this isn't just uh, players listening, but we also have, you know, coaches, we have parents, Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and of all levels, like we'll have professional coaches and we'll have, you know, T-ball coaches. What are some of the things that, that coaches and parents can watch out for, um, in up and coming athletes to say, Hey, like, you know, obviously everybody can benefit from this in some capacity, but what are the things to watch for to say, Hey, this, this might need to be escalated a little bit quicker or to, to someone who can help. Um, well, I think just general overall happiness, um, yep. is one thing that comes to mind, you know, um, uh, I remember uh, speaking at your event. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and he's still a client. I just yep. talked to him yesterday. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it was so prominent that the young man, you know, said, "Well, I'm not having any fun because the coaches don't make it fun." And I was like, "That was such a striking thing to me." And, um, and so he was I young. Think, he was he was 13, right? Yeah. I, I want to say at the time. Uh, he was he was 12. He's yeah. 14 Crazy. now. It's yeah. unbelievable yeah. to me. Yeah. Yep. Um, so, um, so that one thing with, with regard to the parents is, you know, letting go of any expectation and enjoy the, the, uh, the fact that your, your son is, son or daughter's able to compete at a level, um, you know, don't try to keep up with the Joneses. You know, if your son is good enough, there's a saying that I think still holds true. If they're good enough, they'll find you. Mm-hmm. Um, the select teams and the special stuff always don't equate to, um, or often doesn't equate to the end result. Um, that's why youth sports a $15 billion industry. Yeah. And what are they searching for? So I think the parents having goal, realistic goals and expectations and don't coach from the sidelines. I hate coaching from the sidelines. The kids mm-hmm. can't hear you. It does no good. It only frustrates people. Um, I understand it's anxiety provoking to be a parent and watch your kids play. I had two kids play through college. Uh, I get it. Uh, but it just really, it's, um, it's not about you. It's about them. Enjoy whatever they do. Um, and re- you know, respect the coaches. Coaching's a hard gig. Um, yeah. it's really hard that people, you know, oftentimes are volunteering and they're doing the best they can, especially at the youth levels. They may not have formal training or have, uh, played the sport, but they're volunteers and they're doing the best they can. And, you know, don't compare them to Terry Francona, uh, you know, um, and, but the coaches can also get educated. They can learn how to, um, 
you know, how to better themselves and not do it just because that's what the coaches have always done. Um, you know, I had a, a client that um, just told me yesterday, he was a high school kid that, you know, the coach took him out of a game because he struck out and um, the coach yelled at him like, you know, I can't believe you struck out or something that he said. And he goes, coach, I wasn't trying to. <laughs> and the coach, the coach took him out of the game and, uh, and a guy missed the sign. He took him out of the game. And it's just, this type of coaching is archaic and yeah. it's not appropriate now at any level. So coaches can be educated on how to coach, how to talk to kids, how to set a standard of behavior within their team. And there's so many things that coaches can do to just help these kids uh, regardless of the outcome of the game, that it's really a powerful position. And, and that's at every level. And I think, you know, there's the reason why, you know, some of these, you know, Krzyzewski and uh, the, the basketball coaches that have come, that have been there for a long time are there because I think that you can tell the people that come out of there, they're getting more than just basketball or, or football for that matter. Um, so, um so the coaches, parents can, you know, relax, let the kids play, support them. Coaches can, you know, learn more about coaching, understanding that it's a tough job for sure. Um, and that I'm sure that, you know, they love the game. That's why they're still doing it. But, um, you know, good coaching is such an important thing and so valuable for the development of the kids. Um, it's interesting so, hearing you saying that there was a, uh, an interesting quote from Frank Martin, who was the, the women's basketball coach at South Carolina. And he said, you know, what makes me sick to my stomach when I hear grown people say that kids have changed, kids haven't changed. Kids don't know anything about anything. We've changed as adults. We demand less of kids. We expect less of kids. We make their lives easier instead of preparing them for what life is truly about. We're the ones that have changed. Uh, it's, it's, I like the fact that there's a level of ownership with, you know, what coaches need to do. We need to hold kids to a higher standard, but at the same time, like kids have enough failure in their lives, you know, especially in a sport like baseball as a hitter, you know, where you, you fail 70% of the time and you're one of the best of all times. Um, you know, is that, is that a challenge that you're always dealing with is just, you know, the constant struggle to push negativity out for guys as they, as they work through their career? Yeah. Well, I, I agree with them. Yeah. I, 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 you know, you know, Oh, they've changed. They've changed. Well, every generation has changed, mm -hmm. you know, the, um, you know, my era of playing was different. They said that about us and, uh, you know, and, and so it's part of, yeah, things change, but I don't think people change. I think people, I think people are like black labs, Eric. If you, if you're nice to them and you give them food and you pay attention and you encourage them, they'll, they'll run laps for you. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that's our nature. And when that doesn't happen, you know, through parenting or coaching or whatever it is, that's when issues happen. And, and I really think that, you know, the, you know, I mean, this is really getting off the deep end, but, you know, teaching parents to be, to be better parents. And that's a complicated yeah. issue that goes generations, but that's the root of this. And then the coaches are an extension of that. So, mm -hmm. you know, there is a lot of negativity. Um, I think that the world has changed and, you know, when everyone, even the veteran coaches, ah, these kids don't listen anymore. No, it's not them. Maybe it's how you're sending the message because exactly. how you used to send the message 15 years ago is different now. Yeah. And the people, you know, through technology, people have changed. The use of the phones, the, their habits, their behaviors, the lack of free play, the lack of parks. And, you know, things have changed. But I think people 
uh, are still the same. And if you treat them nice with respect and you, as I said in the book, Joe Torrey gave me permission to succeed, mm-hmm. it goes a long way. Absolutely. And I spoke incorrectly. Frank Martin's actually the men's basketball coach at South Carolina. Not that it changes the course of the message, but, um, you know, building on that. So let's, let's talk hitters versus pitchers, you know, so obviously you pitched yourself and have a a ton of experience in that realm. Did you find that you had pushback from hitters because they saw you as a guy who only communicated with, with pitchers or was it just that, you know, you had to frame your discussions a little bit appropriate differently to, to get through to them? Um, uh, No, I I think that, you know, once they, um, it's interesting because the answer, the quick answer to that is no. And I think that naturally there's a natural tie-in because I pitched. Um, But also, you know, that, that perspective of pitching, I can relate to the hitter by saying, look, you know, I know how hard this is. And, um, you know, I've been at the plate. You know, it wasn't very good, uh, but I've been at the plate. I know how hard this is. So what are your controllables? And, you know, and that pitchers make mistakes, you know, and to think of the, you know, when a hitter talks about being anxious with guys on second and third trying to drive in the run, I go, you know, as a pitcher, he's not feeling too good either, you know, so. So you th- you're you're putting the pressure on you, but the pick the pressure can be on the pitcher too. So it's a matter of perspective, and perspective yeah. plays a huge part in this game. Absolutely. So bu- building on that, so you know, I know that you you aren't just you know dealing individually with players, right? You're also dealing in a, an organizational context. So you know, a lot of that is managing a clubhouse dynamic. Um, you know, what what to you makes you know, a, a great teammate. What are the things that you see of, of guys that are, you know, you know, we always hear about like the David Rosses of the world. What, what are the things that you look for in your work with the Cubs and, you know, previously the Giants and the Red Sox um, that have, have really made a big difference for organizations? Yeah, well, I think, you know, I was part of the 2013 team and, and you know, that was such a great David Ross, Johnny Gomes, um, Napoli, you know, PV came over, they kind of tied into this, um, you know, and the the thing that sticks out with all those guys is getting outside of yourself and a, uh, keeping people accountable Mm -hmm. and being accountable yourself, uh, and appropriately challenging people when, you know, they don't do things that are the right things to do, do it the right way. Mm -hmm. Um, number one, and I think, you know, caring about winning, Mm -hmm. um, not being selfish to the guys, you know, David Ross is a great example of that. You know, his job is to win and, and, and support other people. And, you know, and that's, but what players don't understand is that's reciprocal. You know, when you treat, when you treat other people that way, you're treating yourself that way. And that's why parenting can be so fun because right. You're giving love to your child and it's like, Oh, I love having kids, Mm -hmm. you know, there's challenges, but you feel good when you do that. So So those are the guys, and I think, you know, uh, Terry Steinbach comes to mind. You know, catcher with the Twins, had a great career, and just was uh, always there for people. You know, kept people accountable. People respected him, and um, you know, you have those guys that you just would do anything for, and, and he was one of them. Absolutely. And do you think that? I mean, obviously, the game's even a little bit different now, just because of the the sheer volume of of dollars, you know, that are they're in Major League Baseball, you know, as compared to the, the '80s and '90s. You know, do you do you think that 
you can you can change a guy at that level. You know, there's a joke. You know, you can't take the spots off a leopard. When we mm-hmm. when, when we see an athlete, you know, at that high a level, is it is it possible to change it, or guys, you know, are who they are? No, I think I think it can change. Mm-hmm. Um, I do believe that you know there's an innate you know character traits and there's innate um, uh, you know mindset, but I think you know uh, uh, well there's Carol Dweck's book, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, mindset was great because the growth mindset and there's a, uh, a closed mindset. And so I think that people can, in some, to some degree, it may not be with regard to performance. It may be with regard to, um, you know, controlling, you know, uh, having a relationship off the field with their spouse because they're so, amped up all the time that when they're there, they're not there. You know, it may be change, helping them change their behaviors a little bit. Um, you know, I think that the buy-in to, um, well, even I'll answer that even with Lester. So mm-hmm. Lester in the book, we talk about, you know, there's this chapter on imagery and, and what he used and, um, and he was always reluctant to that. And the story in the book is we were in the Oakland Coliseum and, He's struggling a little bit. And he goes, hey, what do you got for me? And I'm like, John, I've known you for five years. The only thing you know we haven't done is imagery. And he goes, well, let's try it. Um, and it's become part of his routine. And so he was open to that. But the player, I think it depends on their – if they have a growth mindset and are mm-hmm. open to change, they can change. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, there's an interesting book. Um, have you read The Captain's Class? It's a, no. It was an awesome book. And what they did was they looked at some of the best teams of all time. They looked at, you know, the Brazilian national team with Pele. They looked at, you know, Michael Jordan's Bulls. You know, a lot of these teams. And what they actually they talk about in the book pretty extensively is that very rarely in the history of the sport or any sport has the best player also been the captain. You know, and that the being the the absolute mm. stud. They talk about how Cartwright was actually the captain on a lot of those Bulls teams when Jordan was the best player because it's it's just too much for the best player to always be the best, you know, player in the in the locker room and at the same time have to manage a lot of those behind the scenes dynamics that, you know, make you a really, really good captain. Is that something that, that you've seen or ever really thought about or you you know even a you know, I guess uh, prescribed to? That the best players aren't the, always the captain. Yeah, yeah, um, uh, yeah. I, I think that 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 doesn't have to be. I think mm-hmm. that even you know you look at the uh, captains, kind of a um, you know look the the best players in high school and college become the captains. But yeah. when you look at the glue of a team and what makes it work, you know if you you know the team's going to be good with or without the cat. I mean is going to be good with the captain yep. and probably uh, I'm trying to say with the best player, obviously he's better. But yeah. if you take away that, that other guy, the guy that's the glue, the mm-hmm. captain's not as good and no one else is. So, uh, I mean, the team is not as good um, and no one else is. So no, I totally agree with that. And I think it's very interesting. You know, those complimentary yeah. players are what wins championships. It's not the star player. Absolutely. So I, I want to delve in a little bit about kind of like the, you know, you touched on the imagery a little bit and, you know, I read a, a 
you know, some books kind of in this regard last year. And one of the themes that kind of popped up is there's, there's kind of a dis difference between just, you know, fantasizing and thinking more positively versus like actually investing in, you know, things that make you happier. And, you know, the couple of examples they talked about is that if you, you, you have, there was a study of overweight women who fantasized about being skinny and they were, you know, less likely to lose weight. You know, another one, there were post-surgery patients who, you know, they fantasized about the recover, but they're, that actually slowed the improvement of their, um, you know, condition. You know, they've done this with people who perform worse on tests and, you know, mm -hmm. they've even seen stuff that decreased people's odds of entering new romantic relationships just by fantasizing. You know, so, you know, there's this mindset that positive thinking lets us feel successful transiently, but doesn't necessarily give us an actual plan to be successful long term. You know, what, what's the difference, you know, between, you know, what we hear about in those studies versus like what you're putting into action, you know, with the athletes you're actually working with? Well, you said the key word is a fantasy, you know, yeah. uh, you know, I, and, and that, that to me is, is, um, just that it's, yeah. there's no substance behind it. I think, I think if you, you know, I, I bet if you look imagery works yeah. and, and if you imagine, you know, uh, the, the behaviors associated with losing weight, like mm -hmm. getting out and, you yeah. know, eating better and exercising and um, doing the activity. You have to do the activity. Yeah. Uh, fantasy is just a fantasy. So, you know, these things, as we know, it's, you know, like you said, you, you, attitudes and change mm -hmm. aren't something you do once in a while. It's something you have to do every day. It has to be process, you know? not outcome. Totally. It's yeah. got to, it's, it's always, it's always, you know, well, it's like, you know, I fantasize about winning the lottery, you know, mm -hmm. and if I fantasize about winning the lottery, I'm going to be poor because I'm going to spend all these money on tickets and nothing's going to happen. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, uh, but yeah, it's about action. You're right. It's about, it's about daily activities, consistent thoughts, consistent beliefs with an end game, which mm -hmm. could be an image. Uh, I would, I would say, you know, a fantasy is not real, but an image, a concrete image of uh, an attainable goal and then setting up a plan to make that happen. That's yeah. goal setting. That works. And the plan is what lets you trust your process, knowing that if it's a 7 o'clock start time at 5.37, this is what I'm doing, this is what I'm thinking. Or if you're Anthony Rizzo going up for an at-bat, you know exactly what your, your pre-at-bat process is. And, yeah. and, more, and just as importantly yeah. is that if your routine is askew for some reason, that you trust that all your prior plans – prior activities, prior routines are going to give you a chance to compete in that moment. You know, if, mm -hmm. if, if I don't have time to get loose and I have to pinch hit and I don't have my swings and I don't have my, you know, lucky shirt on, I still need to go out and compete. And that's where, you know, that's where from past routines, you go, you look, I've done this before because I've practiced it a thousand times. I don't need to have it perfect conditions in which to do this. Absolutely. So, um, Obviously, your book is outstanding, and I can't recommend it highly enough. Um, we'll link to it in the show notes. What are some other books that, that you've enjoyed that you think would be um, you know, good reads for, for the athletes, parents, coaches that are, that are listening? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I always love uh, uh, Tim Galloway's The Inner Game of Tennis. is a really a powerful book that's been read multiple times. Certainly, Dorfman's books on baseball are really good. Um, Ken Revisa, the, the late Ken Revisa's baseball books are good. Um, I like Terry Orlick's, uh, in pursuit of excellence is a book that 
really breaks down uh, mental skills and uh, it's it's uh, a, a good book to to learn from. Um, a couple of books that I like that are just fun reading about performance. Um, one is Clutch, um, and the other one's Choke by Sarah Baylock, I believe, that talks about performance and what. Uh, and it's really interesting. It makes you know analogies to you know, so you want to be a millionaire and and other other events that are non-sporting events and performance. Um, so those are good and and um, yeah, I've enjoyed those. But I'll have to check out your captain. What was that one? Captain Cap- Captain's class. Captain's class. Yeah. yeah. All right. Yeah. That's uh. That's uh, you gave me a bunch of reading for the next six months for my my long drive from Florida back to Massachusetts. So you're <laughs> yeah. rocking some audiobooks. So um, nice. With that said, as we're closing up, uh, folks can learn more about you uh, and your services at bobtuxbury.com. Um, that's right. They can find you on Instagram. It's btuxbury39. And mm-hmm. then um, they can buy the book, 90% Mental, uh, at Amazon, correct? That's right. And awesome. I'm on Twitter. I think oh, yeah. it's at uh, Bob underscore Tewksbury. Perfect. So, yeah. But, hey, what a thrill, man. This is great. This Love is being on your show. Keep up the good work. This is awesome. Uh, <laughs> Someday I want to fantasize about being able to lift as much weight as you. How's that, how's <laughs> oh, that going to work? I don't know. I'm a, I'm on the slow decline. I'm just pulling the parachute these days. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> but um, we appreciate you coming on. This is awesome stuff, and I know a lot of players, coaches, parents, um, folks around the game are really going to benefit from what you shared. So thanks for taking the time. You got it, Eric. My pleasure. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd be thrilled if you'd consider subscribing to the podcast and leaving us a review to read on iTunes. We welcome your suggestions for future guests and questions. Just email EliteBaseballPodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for your continued support, and we'll see you next episode.